Welcome to Podcast 38 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Bates, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. We're going to start this week by talking about World Bee Day. Now, that sounds odd. It's actually a day celebrating bees, and it's on Thursday the 20th of May, because our sponsor, Martin Miller's Gin, is partnering with Top London Venues and Bermondsey Street Bees to celebrate World Bee Day. Day. They're doing that with a Bee's Knees cocktail made from their delicious Summerfield gin that we've already raved about on this podcast with Bermondsey Street Bees are artisan honey and lemon. Anyone who indulges in this delicious honey-based tipple will be given some thyme seeds which support bee conservation and told how to donate to select bee charities. Venues taking part include Aquashard, Kalu Calais in Shoreditch and Chelsea, Little Bat, Cocktail Trading Company and Searcy's at the Gherkin. Then on World Bee Day itself, Martin Miller's Gin is taking over Peach and Nurseries in Covent Garden, offering a themed menu and cocktails. Now, you might ask what bees have to do with culture, but they actually make quite an appearance in literature. I, for one, loved The Beekeeper of Aleppo, the novel by Christy Lefteri, in which beehives embody an idea of a beautifully functioning, productive community. And we certainly all love the idea of honeybees. Recently, it's become a real trend for businesses to have hives, and I know lots of people having a go at keeping bees themselves. Obviously, we all want to save the endangered honeybee, but hang on a minute, says Sarah. Wyndham Lewis, who co-founded Bermondsey Street Bees in 2007. She knows a thing or two about bees and has written a book, Planting for Honeybees, a grower's guide to creating a buzz. And if you're still looking for cultural links, she is the granddaughter of the writer and journalist D.B. Wyndham Lewis, who originated Beachcomber and the St. Trinian's books under his pen name, Timothy Shy. Now, I talked to Sarah a couple of weeks ago, and I can assure you that after hearing what she has to say, you'll never look at a jar of honey in the same light again. I'm delighted to say she's here with us to celebrate World Bee Day and to turn everything you ever thought you knew about bees on its head. Good morning, Sarah. Good Good morning, Charlotte. Gosh, that's a wide brief you've given me. Um, <laughs> I think what's really, really important here is that uh, we all have this extraordinary cultural relationship with the honeybee because it is the only bee that provides us with a foodstuff and, and, and has done since we crawled out of the mud as, as primitive human beings. But I think that people need to put it in the perspective of the fact that there are 25,000 species of bees on earth and that only seven, and not that's not 7,000, that's seven species of them are honeybees. Say that again, seven out of 25,000 species. Seven out of 25,000. That's yeah. amazing. I know, exactly. <laughs> and so that's what World Bee Day is really about, is getting some perspective on this mantra, which I cannot stand people chanting save the bees save the bees because <laughs> the question should always be which bee and where and what are we talking about here because they have different life cycles they have all you know all sorts of special considerations so in world bee day what we're looking at is not just the honeybees on which so much of our pollination depends um, but the wild bees who are also part of that pollination story but even if they aren't are perfectly entitled to, to live a rich and productive life what is the difference between a honeybee seven of them 
and the <laughs> 24,993 other bees? Oh, Ed, that is such a good question. Thank you for that one. Honeybees are defined as honeybees because they overwinter or go through tough times as a colony. So therefore, they're laying down honey stocks to see them through those tough times. Every other bee species either, di either dies back to just a queen and then starts its colony again the following year or just leaves eggs, which will actually then turn into bees the following year. So it's that it's that that lay and they don't make honey well they don't make honey in a way that we can actually share with them there is a, a, a you're, you're drilling down now to a very there are, is a whole load of bee families the stingless bees called the meliponi and they do make honey and sometimes you uh, in some cultures like the mayan culture they worship them and they would take honey from them and still occasionally you do get meliponi honey it's so so many that it has to be taken out of the nest with a with a, a hypodermic i mean you're, you're not talking about any volume of honey so of, the, of the seven that we can actually share the honey how many present in the uk one one. We've got one species of honeybee in the UK. Species. Yeah, and we have people bang on about black bees and stuff. They're subspecies. The thing about the those subspecies of bees, and also a lot of all the wild bee species, of which there's 250 in the UK, is that they are much more closely allied to the native flora of this country. I'm fascinated by all this because um, there is this terrible crisis with bees where they're dying off, and we don't know why. Well, ha. Huh. Let's just be clear about this one, too. You just raised... I feel like I'm on Good. QR here, Ed. No, um, this is brilliant. There have never been more honeybees on Earth than there are now. So, oh, thank God. No, no, oh. no. Wait, 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 oh. wait. <laughs> so we're looking at... This is the UN's figures. Remember, this is UN World Bee Day, so this is not random stuff that's being married. There are over 91 million hives on Earth. Now, the reason for that is because honey is money, and honey has been money since the earliest times. It was traded on the Silk Route. It was a gift that you gave to kings and princes. It has it's had a, a, a food value, a medicinal value, and a cultural value to human beings since forever across many, many cultures. Now, in, in that fact of honey is money and in the fact of them being pollinators on a grand scale because they're, they're very broad feeders, they'll feed from pretty much anything, comes the two areas in which human beings can really abuse the honeybees. So despite the fact we're looking at an all-time high and that if people try to tell you that honeybees are going extinct, which Rouse did last year in their UN press release, we're not looking after them at all well. They're under enormous pressure from monocultural practices and, and the way that food is produced at the moment. So they're not having a good time, but you have to see them in the light of a farmed animal just like a chicken or a sheep so if you're the worst beekeeper in the world and you kill all your bees or lose all your bees or whatever you just go and get some more or you breed some more that's not admirable that is not a fantastic way to manage a species but it's not the same as going extinct which is what what's happening to a lot of the wild bees particularly those that have to live in areas where there is a huge density of honeybees because letting a whole load of honeybees loose in an environment is like having a, a, a you know a hoover it's the same in a lot of, of of cities where there's been this this save the bees has been interpreted as oh let's go and get some bees and put them on our roof let's you know as solicitors or an accountancy firm let's tick a green box by getting some honeybees so then the, the result the outcome of this in london is that we have the highest population of hives in europe from which you can put probably you know extrapolate the world um, and and this is having an appalling impact on the wild bee 
population because nobody's feeding them, nobody's looking after them. So in my rural Arcadia, when oh, yeah. recording this podcast, what should I be planting to help the wild well, bee? If, if you really have got an Arcadia and you've, and you've got space, um, uh, the most important thing you can plant is trees because every time you plant a tree, you plant a city in effect. So an oak tree supports you know, four or 5,000 species of creature, either directly or indirectly. And you cannot do that with a bed of dahlias, I always say. <laughs> you, just, you just can't do it. So things like crab apple, cherry, chestnut, elder, white bean, there's, you know, all our native broadleaf trees are really closely allied with the life of the pollinating insects but I, I you know for people who have a sort of more more urban patches I always say well you know if you can't plant a tree then then look at a shrub and, and, and understand that that is just a small tree so you know don't waste your time sprinkling stupid packets of wildflower seeds which are never going to amount to a row of beans sorry about the pun um, put a shrub in and and it will develop an entire ecosystem around it um, and if you haven't got room for that go for herbaceous and woody perennials um, so all of the, all of the things like teasels and Michaelmas daisies and and ultimately if you've only got a kitchen windowsill go for herbs because if you let herbs flower they are hugely hugely important to a wide variety of pollinators so you know even if you've got almost nowhere to plant you can still be part of a mosaic of improving the forage for pollinators in this country I mean the other thing that's obviously really important is how we choose our honey because yeah, otherwise yeah. we're going to end up with flavoured syrup so tell our listeners exactly what to look for in a jar. It is very complex and um, I'm afraid that it is designed to obfuscate the issue so what I tend to render it down to is there is one word to look for on the back of a honey label and that is the word blend. If you see a blend of EU or non-EU honeys, anything, a blend of anything, you just put it straight down. If it's blended, it's been through a very aggressive processing of some sort. Now, during that processing, it may well have been adulterated as well. Not always, but often. And where it actually says it comes from is, is not in itself anything that you can depend on at all, because honey is transshipped as other products uh, from country to country. So, I mean, what we're looking at with honey is, I think, the biggest food scandal that has ever been in the history of anything. And it's hiding in plain sight. It's hiding on supermarket shelves. So there's a, there's a terrible figure, which is only 14% of the honey that is sold in this country is made here. That is, that is just shocking. You can't make the figures work if you look at the global honey situation. It's actually called honey laundering. I mean, it has, it has its own name and it is the province of organized crime now. So you're, you're up against every possible means to stop you as a consumer actually finding good honey unless you know the beekeeper. Mm. So We need a honey minister. We need a honey <laughs> minister. We need, Ed, we really, really need somebody to, to, to lift the lid off this writhing mass of, of, of dirt and corruption that's going on in the honey world because what they're selling to the consumer is a bill of goods. They're saying, well, this is this wonderful healthy food and it, you know, it's gonna do you good. Even the NHS says, oh, take honey if you've got a sore throat. Nobody's actually saying raw honey. Nobody's actually saying you know, that you should be getting proper honey that hasn't been processed in a food factory. So my, but my, another one of my mantras is real honey is made in hives by bees and supermarket honey is made in factories by food scientists and it's as simple as that so other than going out and buying a 
delicious Martin Miller's Bees Knees cocktail on World Bee Day um, <laughs> yeah. made with your honey. What's the best thing, you know, that your average person in the street can go and do right now? You can go on the British Beekeeping Association site and you literally, it says, find beekeeping near me. And you click that button and you, you will actually find a whole association of people who particularly sort of run about harvest time at the end of summer are desperately keen to sell you fantastic honey. Well, it's just absolutely fascinating. All this. So just before you go, can you tell us the name of your book again and your website? Oh, thank you. Yes, it's called Planting for Honeybees and uh, we are Bermondsey Street Bees and you'll find us uh, at bermondseystreetbees.co.uk and on Instagram, um, you'll find me at Planting for Honeybees. Brilliant. Well, actually, I think Planting for Honeybees is something that will really appeal to our listeners. So they will all be out with their trowels <laughs> and after they've yeah. uh, had, had it delivered. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me. The beautiful Hepworth Wakefield Garden in West Yorkshire, landscaped by Tom Stuart Smith, has been open for visitors, but the gallery has not, of course. But excitingly, that's all about to change, of course. On the 21st of May, the gallery is opening to celebrate its 10th anniversary with the most expansive exhibition of Barbara Hepworth's work since her death in 1975. Visitors will be able to see some of her most celebrated work, including the abstract carving that launched her career, her iconic strung sculptures of the 1940s and 50s, and the big bronzes of her later career. There are also some key loans from national public collections and some from private collections that haven't been on public display since the 70s. Very, very exciting. Here to tell us all about it is the gallery's director, Simon Wallace. Good morning, Simon. Morning, Ed. How are you? Good morning, Simon. How are you? Morning, Charlotte. Excited, excited to be getting the doors open again. It's been very weird being the director of a public gallery with no public. I'm sure. Well, I mean, this is so exciting because especially as Barbara Hepworth, has never seemed to have been such a cult figure. I think many of our listeners might have seen Sky Art's March documentary on her and even her boiler suits that she wore are now positioning her as a bit of a style icon, I noticed from last Sunday's papers. I know there's going to be even more of a buzz about her when your curator Eleanor Clayton publishes her book, Barbara Hepworth, Art and Life, with a foreword by Alice Smith. It's been so interesting to watch this big resurgence of interest in her. What do you think accounts for that? I think it's it's fundamentally the quality of the work. I mean, she is one of the most important 20th century artists. But, you know, I, I think in many ways... She, Perhaps she was undervalued and underthought about for rather a long time. I mean, she did stand in the shadows of, of Henry Moore uh, uh, rather unfairly for, for a long period of time. But I think people have really come to realise the quality of the work, the importance of the work and, you know, the, the fact that you know, she was a mother of four working during the war working and succeeding in a world that was largely dominated by men during that period and, and still came out as you know, a fantastically ambitious and successful artist. I think she's an interesting icon to really explore more. And obviously the work we've done over the last 10 years at the Hepworth has also raised her profile hugely and interest in her work and connected it to a whole set of younger artists working now. So that influence is ongoing. It's a terrific time to relook at one of the most important British artists that, that, that we've ever produced. And Fascinating for us in Wakefield because she was born and grew up in, in Wakefield. And I think there's a curious and compelling 
timeless quality to so much of Barbara's sculpture. I mean, that fascination for picking exactly the right materials, for finding exactly the right wood or stone in which to create these immaculate, honed down, highly precise forms that to me, and I think to so many others, feel so emotionally charged. You know, this isn't some cold, bloodless, abstract art. This is something that I think is full of passion and life and human relationships and connectivity. And I think it's those very human qualities that um, people do consistently um, relate to. Well, I think it's it's fascinating how much of her personality is sort of coming through. And I think we're all rather intrigued by her as a person because she, she strikes me as somebody totally un- uncompromising, but, but she wasn't seen as easy, was she? I wonder if you could tell our listeners a bit more about her as as a character, really, and how she managed to break through as a female artist at, at such a, as you say, very male-dominated time? Well, I, I think, you know, there's an incredible amount of passion stoked very early from her experience when she was being taught art at, at, at Wakefield Grammar School for Girls, I think inspired this engagement with art through an amazing art teacher there. Barbara took that, allied it to an amazing work ethic um, and, and, and dedication to really want to break out and, uh, and, and ensure that her ambitions could be realised from a background that probably would have been quite unlikely. It's fascinating when you see these pictures of a sort of rather staid Edwardian family and then you see these amazing pictures of Barbara as an art student. And as you were saying earlier, Charlotte, you know, there's there, she is a style icon too, you know, very much uh, at the cutting edge and the avant-garde from a pretty young age. So I think all of that spirit and energy that ambition gets channeled. So I think it's really that sense of clarity of vision too, you know, having this early sense of exactly what it is she wants to express in her sculpture and her art. I mean, initially, of course, taking uh, the human body and the human form as inspiration, but soon breaking out into this more abstract language that nevertheless has that power of the body and the landscape in some way. And I think, you know, given the family background she came from, her father was a civil engineer for the Old West Riding, and she often used to travel out in the car with her father into the Yorkshire landscape. And I think had that family fascination for the notion of figures in a landscape and how that relationship between us as human bodies and, you know, the physical landscape, how that might get played out in the sculpture. So I think that early background in Wakefield in Yorkshire too was a huge part of developing her art. I mean, as, you know, the same sort of situation, of course, happened for Henry Moore, although there's a lot of divergences as well as similarities in their, in their work. But, yeah, I think fundamentally very, very driven in individual, very intellectually curious in so many different art forms, literature, philosophy, religion, theatre, music, all of these things come through in the work. And in fact, this exhibition does show some of the little-known stories about her wider work as an artist in theatre productions and her textile designs. You're going to get a broader picture of her as an artist. You said she had four children, um, so she must have loads of grandchildren. I wonder if if they got involved in the exhibition. Well, the support from the family has always been absolutely fantastic. I mean, the Hepworth Wakefield would never have come to fruition as a, as, as, a, as a new build art gallery created by Sir David Chipperfield, designed by Sir David Chipperfield. But it wouldn't have happened if the family hadn't given this incredibly generous gift. Their ongoing um, engagement and, and uh, you know, passion for, for, for Hepworth mirrors ours. So that's been wonderful. Well, that's a nice segue, actually, because I was going to ask about the museum itself and kind of how... 
you know, you're 10 years old now. How, how have you um, kind of integrated into the town? Have the people of Wakefield embraced the Hepworth? Well, very much. I mean, I think we're very much seen as, you know, a, a, an important and loved part of the fabric of, of the district. I mean, we were incredibly lucky to have as near neighbours Yorkshire Sculpture Park, who are also in, in Wakefield. Also, the natural new home for the fabulous art collection that Wakefield had built up from the late 1920s onwards. It had actually created one of the most important collections of modern British art in the country. And that really wasn't necessarily a very well-known story before the Hepworth Wakefield opened. And probably one of my proudest moments in looking back over 10 years of being open is just how much the collection at the Hepworth has grown. We've added £42 million worth of works of art since we opened uh, 10 years ago. (laughs) But that £42 million is all from private philanthropy, trusts and foundations. We have no purchase fund for works of art at all. But it's incredible to add £42 million worth of fabulous, life-changing, inspirational works to Wakefield has been enormously important. Never underestimate Yorkshire pride. Never underestimate the pride of a place like Wakefield. You know, we all care about people that have built fantastic careers based on the experiences they had in this unique county where you've got this interesting interplay between the urban and the rural. And to get 250,000 visitors a year on the outskirts of Wakefield, I think has proven over the decade that people do love to come back regularly. When it actually comes down to the 10th anniversary date, which will be the 21st of of May, we're going to be publishing our first economic impact study. And I've already got the figures for that. For every £1 invested, every £1 of public money invested in the Hepworth, £9.43 comes back into the local economy. So on so many levels, I think we're inspiring people, we're engaging people, and we're putting money back into that economy. We created this wonderful Tom Stewart Smith designed garden, which is looking absolutely beautiful now. I think Hepworth would be so thrilled given she loved to see her work in the outside landscape too. But it connects beautifully to the 19th century mill building complex that's right opposite the Hepworth that we've encouraged a developer to take on. They've been redeveloping that site all through lockdown. Tile Yard North, it's going to be called, are going to be opening an amazing hub of creative industries, studio spaces in this developed mill. So I think all of these things are good news stories about the impact the Hepworth has for the quality of people's lives and the development of Wakefield, more important than ever when you think of the levelling up agenda. You know, this is really vital now, the role culture plays in levelling up the UK so we spread the wealth and opportunity meaningfully, and I'm really proud we're playing an active role in that. Oh, that's brilliant. You've just added one more visitor. I'm definitely coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it'll just be an inspiring time to, 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 to come. I mean, with, with the garden in full bloom, Hepworth in depth, and the quality of the architecture there, you're on to a winner. You're going to enjoy your visit. And of course, when people do come up, you have to go and see the Yorkshire Sculpture Park as well. Make a weekend of it. When we can't travel long distances, Yorkshire is, West Yorkshire in particular, the perfect place to come if you love art. Oh, well, thank you so much, Simon. That was great. Thank you very much indeed. Great pleasure. Good luck with the opening. Thank you. Look forward to seeing you up in, in Wakefield. May marks the 120th anniversary of the Wigmore Hall. In fact, it's one of my mother's favourite places on earth. It's also one of my mother-in-law, so that's good news. Anyway, the Wigmore Hall is going to be celebrating its 120th anniversary with a 25 concert anniversary festival. Opens on the 17th of May and culminates on its actual birthday, which is the 31st of May. After a tumultuous year in lockdown, of course, during which the Wigmore Hall streamed over 200 concerts around the world, 
London's great concert hall has appointed nine new associate artists and a new partnership with the African Concert Series. It's going to rename its green room after the legendary soprano Jesse Norman, who enjoyed a decades-long association with the hall. And there's also going to be a learning festival exploring the theme of connectivity and music's role in the face of isolation, a subject we've explored quite a lot on this podcast. So there's lots to celebrate, lots going on, and to tell us all about it is the hall's director, John Gilhooley. Good morning, John. Good morning, Ed. How are you? Good morning, John. And you must be thrilled to be welcoming audiences back if you can. And you have so much in store for them. So can you start by telling our listeners about some of your nine new associate artists and a bit about the African Concert Series, which is being spearheaded by the Nigerian-Romanian pianist Rebecca Omordia. I hope I've pronounced that right. Indeed. Well, the, the nine associate artists, many have a, a very long association with us, such as Amjad Ali Khan and, and his family, and of course the the American uh, jazz bassist uh, Christian McBride, but but expanding that family to include Lawrence Power, who who is the the violist certainly of of, of his generation uh, here in the UK, um, and uh, the uh, saxophonist Trish Trish Clues, and that's an interesting appointment because Trish is is a, a young woman in the jazz world, which is very much a male dominated area, so. I particularly wanted to 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 invite her uh, as an associate artist to to bring that issue into the light in a way. And of course, Wigmore Hall has always uh, promoted the best of of jazz musicians. It's not just the Western chamber classical tradition that that happens on that stage. Again, Elaine Michener, an artist who 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 brings so much in terms of her commitment to, to uh, female composers, but also to, to neglected voices. So working with people like that, complementing the programming that the whole, the whole is famous for or most famous for, but also highlighting the fact around this anniversary that it's, it's been very much part of, of the 120-year tradition. We're, we're looking at, at, at the period at the moment between 1901 and 1950, when a huge amount of, of black artists actually came to the hall from the States and used it as their first port of call before going on to major European tours. Uh, they claimed contralto Marian Anderson would, would have been one of those. And in fact, there, there's a new book uh, uh, about black artists visiting London for, for uh, classical singing, but also for the uh, musical theatre tradition between 1901 and 1950. And we launched that uh, in September of the whole. So more on that and more on the people behind that as, as the season progresses. So, you know, this, this announcement actually would have happened anyway it's 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 not a reaction to black lives matter because just before the pandemic we had signed off a five-year diversity plan and most of this was listed in it but what the pandemic has allowed us to do through live streaming uh, in particular over the past 12 months is accelerate that and and respond to all sorts of seismic events internationally and the very fact that we've had six million viewers in the lockdown, over 220 concerts. And that's that's been a very diverse programme. That's amazing. Well, and also that 40% of the viewers on YouTube we know alone are under the age of 40. And, you know, mm. it, it focuses on the, on the fact that our membership has gone through the roof and, and donations are very healthy. So we're in a good position coming out of the pandemic and we're not a fusty old venue. In fact, I was just looking the other day, in the 1930s, there was a conference in, in the hall with, with associated concerts about the whole issue of, of sexuality and gender. And uh, this was, this, this even had, some of it had come out of 1920s Berlin, different types of cabaret and that sort of thing. Uh, the hall was 
in its history ahead in, in, in many areas. Since 2006, we've commissioned 600 new works. Again, that's a staggering number. I, I can't think of any other venue in the world that's actually done that. It's a case of just getting people to, to acknowledge that the whole is a very diverse place. We're not trying in any way to, to scare the traditional audience, which has retained its membership, but this, there's a huge new audience out there. And indeed, there's an, there's an audience from what we see online that, that possibly will never visit the hall, but want to connect with us. One million pounds has come in in terms of small donations, people donating five or 10 pounds online as they watch concerts. And then there've been lots of checks for 10, 20, 30,000 coming from, from those who can afford that sort of number saying, we're really enjoying your streams. We might never get to the hall very much. We, we live in Switzerland or we live in the States, uh, but you've given us a refuge. You've given us a safe space through this diverse programming in lockdown that we wouldn't otherwise have had. And most importantly, all of those donations coming in, not only secure the future of the whole, but we've been able to pay every single artist who appeared uh, their full fee. You've got an action-packed programme and you have died in the wool fans like my mother, who are going to come to all 25 concerts. Uh, it, it may be invidious to say this, but are, are there one or two kind of absolutely don't miss concerts. I think it's always a joy to welcome Mitsuko Uchida to the hall and particularly in Schubert. There's a programme from Gwyneth Ann Rand, who is, I think, an exceptional soprano. And she will join us for a programme on the day that we rename our green room in honour of Jesse Norman. Yeah, I, I was really interested hearing you saying, John, earlier about how the pandemic has actually strengthened rather than weakened your, you know, your sense of community. And I think that's what um, the Learning Festival connectivity is going to celebrate. Can you tell us a bit about that? So many people have been in isolation. Our post box have been bursting with people writing to us from all over the world, uh, either by hand or, or, or email. And it's all about how we connect online, but we mustn't forget the human connection. So central to that, of course, at the moment, or certainly until about a week or so ago, the area around Wigmore Street around Marylebone, around that part of London, was absolutely dead. We're going to bring some music outdoors to Portman Square around that anniversary on the 30th of May. And that's for the local residents. But it's also just a way of showing that life is coming back to the city centre. We're not far from Oxford Street. I attended most of those 200 concerts, apart from the, the radio presenter or the online presenter. I was the only person in the hall. And walking out on Wigmore Street at 10 past nine every evening. It was absolutely desolate. So just to bring that music outdoors, we're going to do three concerts on the day, including a concert for families on that morning and then and then two other concerts. And what that means for the local businesses, even Selfridges are happy that we're, we're um, playing music around the corner on that day. Everybody's bought into that, that we bring the hall outside for a day because we want people returning to the city centre. We want the West End to to come back to life. We've been able to keep the flame burning a bit at Wigmore Hall, uh, but that's been for everybody. And we can't wait for all of our colleagues to come back and all the doors to reopen uh, because we need that concert going public. We need the West End reignited for the restaurants, for the taxi drivers, for the local businesses. Uh, all that's got to happen. And of course, uh, the city of Westminster is, is central to the, the national profile. Um, that's not being London centric. I think if things work well in Westminster, then that can be used as a very good blueprint for towns and cities uh, right across the country. And I long for the day. I love standing in front of house and chatting to people as they come in. I long for the day that we're able to to shake hands with the audience, to hug those close to us again, to welcome artists back, not to have to wear masks and, and socially distance. 
all that sort of thing, just to to bring back that that humanity into to all of our interactions, and and you know that gives us that sense of event, that sense of occasion. That's that's all part of a live experience, and and there is a huge hunger for it because we have to have socially distanced audiences. Certainly for that first month from the seventeenth of May, we're having to ballot uh, rather than than sell seats. And obviously we're oversubscribed because of this, this huge surge in, in, in membership and all the rest. But it shows the hunger is there. We're very optimistic. There, there, there are worries in the industry about another lockdown in, in, in the winter. Let's not even think about that. Let's not go there. Let's, let's all plan ahead for the moment. Let's hope for the best. And we will deal with these hurdles if they emerge. Fantastic. What a lovely, optimistic note to end on. Thank you so much, John, for coming on and telling us all about it. Thank you very much. Thank you both. Now, before we go, we're very excited to tell you that to celebrate World Bee Day, Martin Miller's Gin is offering our listeners a 10% discount on its entire range from the 12th of May to the 31st of October. All you have to do is add breakout when checking out and you can redeem this order from masterofmalt.com. How cool is that? Yes, and we'll put all those details on our website, which, as I'm sure you all know by now, is www.countryandtownhouse.co.uk. And we're confident you're going to love the whole range. We're drinking the Summerfull at the moment, but I'm also looking forward to trying a Bees Knees cocktail to celebrate our bees on the 20th of May. But that's all we've got time for this week. But please go to our website to find our other podcasts, Great British Brands, hosted by Michael Heyman of Changemakers and House Guest with Carol Annette, in which she talks to movers and shakers in the interior design world. This week, she's chatting to Simon Burville, the man behind Gaze Burville, the luxury garden furniture company that our garden columnist, Randall Sidley, loves and you'll find all the weekly country and townhouse newsletter and the great british brands newsletter with our picks of all this summer's cultural events by adding forward slash newsletter to our website address and don't forget to go in search of a bee's knees cocktail or make one at home on world bee day we put the recipe up on our site so get equipped with some really good honey remember no blends a lemon and a bottle of summer full gin with your 10 percent discount sounds delicious see you next week bye Bye.